It's as if they think there is some magic money tree. But there isn't a magic money tree that we can shake that suddenly provides for everything that people want. And we have to stop thinking that there's a magic money tree. In the last few months, we've seen the government promise billions in support for people and businesses impacted by coronavirus. Not only have they found the magic money tree, but they've stumbled into a veritable rainforest of them. Supporters of austerity, like former Chancellor Sajid Javid, claim the last decade of cuts is what enabled the government to put money into these schemes now. But is this true? All of the austerity, all of that was was a terrible mistake. People have died because of austerity. Ten years of austerity has made us ill-prepared for tackling something like coronavirus. Some of our public services were barely able to cope, even before the virus struck. And so, what effect did austerity have on our pandemic preparedness? And now that we're entering another recession, will the government turn to austerity once again? I will be setting out a comprehensive plan to explain how we can continue to suppress the disease and at the same time restart the economy. On this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we'll be looking at COVID-19, austerity, and how we can respond to this crisis differently. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, we're joined down the line by Frank van Leuven, Senior Economist at NEF. Hi, Frank. Hi. Thanks for being with us. All right, so we're going to jump in and set the scene. So in response to coronavirus, as I said at the top, the government has created a bunch of financial support schemes for companies furloughing workers, for some self-employed people and for struggling businesses. Plus, it's been increasing the rate of universal credit and expanding housing benefit. So we talked about these things on the pod in recent weeks. But Frank, how has the government paid for these big numbers so far? So far, what, what the government's done has been to issue debt to pay for these these types of um, schemes, it essentially borrows money from the private sector. So it, it will issue a loan and it will use that loan to make, make its payments. And this has also been supported by the, the central bank. And at a glance, some of these figures can be quite scary. There was this recent report by the Resolution Foundation that showed that the UK government debt to GDP ratio, which is the ratio of the debt to the size of the economy, that it will peak at about 106% if the current lockdown lasts for three months, uh, 129% if it lasts for six months, and 167% if it lasts for 12 months. And and so these are levels we haven't really seen since the, the 1950s. These numbers might seem really big on the surface, but at the same time now, we also have interest rates, that's the cost of of serving the government's debt, that are essentially at historical lows. So the same report actually finds that the cost of servicing this debt will fall to what it was before the the crisis. So that means it's manageable. At, At the same time, we should really be aware that the UK can borrow uh, money in its own currency. And and as we're seeing right now, if necessary, we can essentially print the money to pay off the debt. And and so we don't really have a big problem financing very large debts. And and I should say that we're we're coming out with a new report at NEF that will discuss this in more detail about the constraints around debt and and what really matters is is more things like, you know, inflation, the the resources available to the economy and and, and other things. So so watch watch the NEF space. 
Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Can I ask a follow up on that? Sure, sure. So during the last decade, it seems like the government has constantly been talking about this reducing the size of the deficit. So, so what is that? And does that relate to what we're talking about? Should we be worried about it? So the deficit is the difference between what the government taxes and then what it spends every year. And that difference contributes to the overall debt that the government has. Mm -hmm. And so is the deficit that kind of comes off the back of coronavirus something that we should be worried about? Not really. When we think about these big price tags, that's not really what we should be worrying about. We should be worrying about the condition of the economy. And I would say, like, if, if the government uses the loans, when we start making investments in the recovery, they'll start paying for themselves. So put differently, if the government looks after um, employment and the economy, the debt will essentially sort itself out. Mm. Okay. All right. So we've been worrying about the wrong thing when everyone's asking these questions about how are we going to pay for it? What about the debt? What about the deficit? In your opinion, those are the wrong questions. Yes, Absolutely. All right, let's dive into some of the right questions then, teeing me up nicely. So we're going to be talking about all this new public spending in this episode, and you've written that one purpose of public spending is to absorb and pool risks in society and the economy. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the first thing to say is that the government has been thinking about risks to the economy in, in terms of its own borrowing. And the principal measure for being ready to any kind of shock has become the level of public debt. And there's that famous saying by George Osborne, who says, we must act to fix the roof when the sun is shining. So basically, we should tighten our belts and reduce public debt during the normal times to help create room for borrowing for the bad times. And what this logic kind of comes out to is that Austerity will make us more resilient to a crisis because we'll have more space to borrow when the crisis hits tomorrow. And so what we're saying is what's happened is the government has become so fixated on reducing the size of the risks of government borrowing and the deficit. But this has led to the accumulation and buildup of risks and vulnerabilities elsewhere in society and the wider economy. And so far from increasing the resilience of our economy and the social system, the buildup of these risks and vulnerabilities has essentially weakened our capacity to cope and respond to the consequences of the corona pandemic. And so when we say that public spending has essentially weakened our ability to absorb risk, we're talking about not the numbers that are these big debt to GDP figures, but we're talking about risks to public health, to social care, to, to our welfare system and to households. And austerity has left us more exposed and less prepared for the impacts of, of, of this pandemic. Yeah. So I want to I want to dive into that. So COVID-19 is obviously a really big risk. Everyone knows that to society and the economy, but it would be great if you could say more about how the austerity regime over the past decade or so has affected our ability to deal with it. If we could begin by talking about healthcare and social care in particular, that would be great. Yeah, great. If we first look at the NHS, while we've claimed that NHS budget has been protected, it has. But by historical standards, NHS spending normally increases at about 4% per year. And, and in, over the last decade, it's only increased about 1% per year. So put differently, had NHS spending increased at its historical average, we would have seen 20 billion in extra funds per year. 
if it had even increased at the rate of under Margaret Thatcher, we would have seen an increase of 15 billion each year. So we've seen a, a huge reduction in NHS spending. And as a result, we now have a workforce crisis going into the corona pandemic at the NHS. Wages have fallen so much that we can't recruit, we can't train or keep staff. We have staff shortages that have have been reported of up to 100,000 vacancies at NHS hospitals, mental health and community providers across the UK. And in England alone, we have 41,000 nurse vacancies. And all of this has contributed to the deterioration, essentially, in, in the quality of care. We've seen in recent years, A&E attendances, waiting times and admissions have all really gone up. Then on the social care side, we've seen a drop in central government spending by 38%. Consequently, care workers only make up to about £16,000 on average a year. The turnover of staff is huge. About 40% of care workers leave their jobs each year. And of those that leave their jobs, around a third of them end up leaving the sector completely. And as is the case with the NHS, there's also huge shortages of staff with around 110,000 roles, one in 10 currently unfulfilled in the social care sector. Mm. So it's quite clear how a lot of these staff shortages and impacts from austerity would then create a condition where we're not best placed to respond to a global pandemic. Awesome. Could you talk to us about how austerity has created risk in the welfare system? I know you wrote about that as well. Sure. So yes, I think we need to be very clear that going into this pandemic, we really had a very weak welfare system. But at the same time, we should be clear that there has been some helpful temporary measures in in the job retention scheme and the self-employed schemes. And these are are quite ambitious and we should recognise that. But at NEF, we've actually done an analysis that shows that about 5.7 million employees could actually be left out of these programs. And unfortunately, the millions of people that fall through the cracks will have to rely on one of the weakest social safety nets in advanced economies and in the UK's post-war history. Universal credit has been raised in the main adult payment by about £20 per week. But this is only a £7 increase, which reverses about 20% of, of cuts to welfare experience since 2010. It's increased by 7 billion, but we had a cut of about 34 billion. So it's very small. And I think we did some more analysis that really illustrates how bad this is. A minimum wage worker would roughly make about a third of their former income on universal credit. So that's a loss of about 210 pounds a week. And so it's staggering. It's not enough. Yeah. And finally, then, what did the previous austerity agenda mean for businesses and also the households who rely on them? Yeah, this is the next part of the piece of work that we did. What we've shown is that because government spending is an income for the private sector, what austerity does, if you cut spending, you cut the incomes of households and the private sector. So we've shown already that spending cuts by the government have suppressed each household's income in the economy by £3,600 in 2018 alone. Now, in the attempt to supplement our falling incomes, households and firms then basically take out more debt to cope. And so we've seen since 2014 a huge spike in consumer borrowing. It's now at historical highs. And of course, then we have poorer households who have been hit much more by austerity. They are also borrowing much more. And and we have between 8 and 10 million people now over-indebted. 
spending more than a quarter of their income on consumer credit repayments. And this over-indebtedness is really concentrated with people that have an income of less than £30,000 a year. And just under half of all households spending more than a quarter of their income on, on debt repayments only have an income of £15,000 a year. The point is, is that the government's attempt to live within its means has suppressed private sector incomes and encouraged households to live beyond their means. And so they have less of a fallback position coming into Corona. Okay, that was very comprehensive and has given me a much clearer idea of where we are. Let's put risk aside for a moment. I'm sure they'll come up again. But the last time the government kind of implemented an austerity plan was, of course, after the recession starting in 2008. And we know that that really damaged our public services. But could you talk about the impact that austerity had on our economic recovery from that crisis? Yeah, yeah. The irony of this all is that austerity has proved self-defeating on its own terms, because we've tried to deliver this program, but we have higher levels of debt instead of reducing them. So the cuts in expenditure and and the negative implications this has had for economic activity has led essentially to a reduction in the government's tax intake, and it becomes more difficult to pay off the debt. And, And then, of course, the opposite also holds true spending and investing, it creates employment and increases wages for nurses, for teachers. These workers will then spend their money across the economy and, and they'll help create new you know, revenue for shops and retailers and other businesses. And, and then these businesses can go and reinvest their money to hire more employees and so forth. And so you get this kind of positive reinforcing um, feedback loop. And so if you have a bit more economic activity, brought on by a bit more spending by the government, then with an appropriate tax regime in place, the government will be able to raise revenues and and pay off the debt. Okay, so now that we've kind of talked about the economic and societal effects of austerity in the past, do you think then that what you've just described and what we should be doing will happen? Will the government turn to it again? And how much has austerity overall been discredited? I mean, it it feels at least to me like I'm hearing a lot across the board that like, this is not the answer. It hasn't worked. So are the government going to turn around and do everything you've said that they should do? So that's a really good question. I I think it, it brings a very important point about what we did to balance the books. Now, There's two ways you can try and balance the books. You can either cut government spending or you can raise taxes. And what happened after 2010 was that the government decided not to raise any taxes, especially on the wealthy, and decided instead to cut spending. And so if we think about fiscal space and we ignore for a second this this report that NEF is coming out with about how we can print money and so forth, what the government could do is raise taxes. And I think I've seen Rishi Sunak, the, the current chancellor of the Exchequer, say we may have to raise some taxes in the future. And ideally, what we would want at NEF is that the vast majority of the taxes that we raise will be progressive, that they will come from higher income earners and especially from the wealthier parts of society. And that is definitely possible. And so that could be an aspect that the government decides to see. The next thing that it could do if it was truly enlightened is realize that the central bank is actually buying a lot of the government's debt then who does the government actually owe the debt to if the central bank is buying it? Because 
the central bank belongs to the government. And so, in effect, the government ends up owing itself. And so when the central bank buys the government's debt, it's effectively cancelling that. So it could be that the government might acknowledge that the Bank of England will keep a certain amount of this debt forever and in effect then cancel it. And then the so-called debt level will not be as high. But again, I think the main thing to, to put forward here and what our main recommendation is that we shouldn't be narrowly focusing, and hopefully the government in the aftermath of this crisis will not be narrowly just focusing on the debt and the deficit as ends in themselves. And so when making decisions about borrowing and spending and taxing, the government starts considering the longer term impact of these decisions on society and the economy, and and both in strict economic kind of terms, but more broadly in terms of the positive benefits that could potentially stem from these investments. And so we need to not just focus on these debt to GDP numbers and think about the other risks that are out there, the other opportunities that are out there too. Mm. Well, let's talk about those other opportunities for a second, because circling back to where we started, we know, you know, the government's promised billions of pounds in corona relief. And we clearly, off the back of this conversation, want to avoid another round of austerity. So where are the alternatives? Where else can the government find the money? Um, I've got a few options uh, written down at my end, but what do you reckon? So if it wanted to, first of all, it could decide that actually this debt to GDP level is actually not something that I really need to worry about. The debt servicing cost, that is the, the interest that the government pays, it will not be historically high because we have such low interest rates. So it could actually just say, hey, you know what? We're fine. Debt to GDP level, even at the highest level that I I cited to you before, which was 129%, I think Japan has a debt to GDP level of like 200%. That's Japan. That's before the crisis. So again, they're just numbers. So it could just say, hey, you know what? It's not the biggest issue in the world. The other thing that it could do is it could tax, like we talked about before, It could decide to print the money. A very bad idea would be to sell off public assets, which is essentially the public things that the government owns and and sell these off and use the income from that to pay off the debt. And we saw a lot of this happen since the 1980s, but a lot since 2010. What could also happen is it could let inflation kick in. Now, that means that it's a bit of a complicated one, but that prices essentially start to rise and we let incomes and wages rise as well. And then the level of debt, because wages and prices have increased so high, that the level of debt kind of stays the same in terms of its price level. And then essentially it's it's been inflated away, if you will. Mm. Okay, so there's a couple of options. There are, there are some things that they could do. I had a, a question more generally about the, that you may or may not be able to answer or have thoughts on around the kind of austerity narrative point and I guess public response. I've heard some really interesting things recently and folks like Will Davies and other people saying that, you know what, one of the things that worked so well about austerity in the past was the government's accompanying narrative of, you know, uh, the construction of welfare scroungers and obviously migrants basically kind of bad agents who were taking money out of the economy and they were the scapegoats. And that was a big part of making the austerity narrative fly. You know, we all need to tighten our belts because of these bad apples. But when it comes to Corona, obviously people are going to be much less willing to swallow the idea that 
anyone is to blame, you know, and has individual responsibility for becoming sick and losing their life or losing a loved one um, because of this pandemic. So I'm just wondering the extent to which you think that even if the government did go with an austerity narrative, the public would accept it. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I think that even before coming into this, we had reached a certain level of austerity fatigue. You even have some of the most physically conservative organizations, such as the IMF, the World Bank, saying that austerity is a bad idea in the recovery. Even the conservative party has moved in terms of where it's at and in balancing the budget. And so hopefully that that kind of sense will remain. But I, I definitely think every single person and, and household mostly has had that night where they haven't been able to sleep, maybe, or that moment of pause where they've thought to themselves, like, hey, you know, this just is not working and we need a, a better way. And for sure, I, I think everyone must have this inkling that austerity has not worked, it's failed on its own terms, and it's left us more vulnerable than we should be. And it's definitely not the route to success moving forwards. Okay. All right. So thinking finally then about moving forwards and about the recovery more widely, how do you think we can come out of this with a, with a better economy, an economy that actually works for more people? What does a good recovery look like? And particularly what would it mean for us to be better prepared for future crises like climate change, for example? So I'd say like if, I mean, there's so many things to think about here and there's many, many things to say. So excuse me for not saying them all. I think that there's maybe three areas to focus on. One is we can have a recovery that focuses on green investment in infrastructure and to help us kind of hit our climate targets. And this could be investment in insulation of homes, in flood defences, in solar energy and wind farms and so forth. And this will dramatically help create jobs across the country where they're needed most, and they'll help us reduce our carbon emissions at the same time. The second part that we want to do is a flip side to this coin, and we tend to think of green jobs only as jobs that are in so-called, you know, the infrastructure sectors, but actually, you know, nurses, doctors, social caregivers, and so forth, those are also green jobs or sustainable jobs, if you will. And so we should also have the second part of the recovery process should be huge investment in that part of our welfare system to make up for the lost jobs and, and the shortages that we've had over the years. And then a third one is... You know, coming into this crisis, we had a dramatically unbalanced financial system. And this is partly the consequence of austerity by the government, you know, reducing spending and investment. It expected the private sector to pop up and take over and fill up for those gaps and use the financial system to, to come in. But we have a financial system, unfortunately, that is completely skewed towards the financial sectors of the economy and to the housing and property market. And we need to dramatically change and rebalance this so that lending is towards more productive purposes for businesses and for SMEs throughout the country. And I think that's a huge part of what this recovery should also look at. Okay. So in general, prevention is better than the cure, or depending on your interest, prevention is cheaper than the cure. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. So I think, lovely listener, and Frank Van Leuven down the line, that is sadly all all we've got time for this week, unless there's any uh, final golden nuggets that you wanted to drop in that you haven't been able to hit. I hope I've managed to hit everything you you wanted me to hit, Aisha. You did. You've hit everything. It's been absolutely exhaustive. I've learned so much. Thank you. Lovely listener, if you're craving more chat about this, we'll be following up this discussion in an online briefing over Zoom on Thursday the 7th of May. We'll be talking to Frank again, as well as economists Eric Lonergan and Joanna Montgomery. Did I say that right? Jonah. 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 Jonah Montgomery. I'm really sorry, Jonah. I hate when people do that to my name. Keep an eye on our social media or sign up to our mailing list for updates on that briefing. We'll include the links in the podcast notes. Frank Van Leuven, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, hear more from you, where can they go? What should they read? Come to the NEF website. You can also follow me on Twitter, Frank Van Leuven. I'll be there. And I tend to put these things into very short tweets that are accessible and easy to follow. That's great. And are there sometimes pictures of your lovely dog? Um, there tends to be my, my t- Tinkerbell will, will pop up from here, here to there. Yeah. Oh my God, yay. Brilliant. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, as usual, tell someone about it. And as always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. Stay safe.